Throughout this podcast series, we've featured a lot of larger scale commercial farming operations, but soil health is just as important for farms that operate on smaller acreages. For me, soil health is the most critical thing to the success of our operation, right? We used to run a small CSA and, uh, you know, soil health impacted the taste of our tomatoes. It impacted the amount of fertilizers and inputs we had to put on there. One of Wendell Berry's quotes is, uh, what I stand for is what I stand on. And I, I think that soil is what we all stand on and it's the foundation for all life and sustenance on this planet. So there's nothing more important than healthy soils. We're joined today by Mike Lewis, a farmer in Kentucky, military veteran, and the senior manager for the National Center of Appropriate Technologies. This is the Soil Sense podcast, where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. On this show, we unpack the ways farmers collaborate to build healthier soils and adapt systems to work on their farm for both sustainability and profitability. Let's get to the root of all that and cover some ground on today's episode of Soil Sense. Hey there, thanks for tuning into Soil Sense. I'm one of your hosts, Tim Hamrich. Today, I had the opportunity to sit down with Kentucky farmer and NCAT senior manager, Mike Lewis. Mike farms in southeastern Kentucky on a small farm in the western foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. His farm consists of 126 acres, 12 of which he uses to grow fresh market vegetables, and the other 114 or so is a forest-based pasture system where he raises cattle, pastured pork, and pastured poultry. He's also the senior manager in the Sustainable Agriculture and Rural Communities Division of NCAT, which is the National Center for Appropriate Technologies. There, his work focuses on building resilient communities and supporting farmers in sustainable production systems to help them improve their own profitability and reduce input costs. And we'll talk a little bit more in the episode about how they carry out uh, that work. We'll kick things off in today's conversation with Mike sharing a little bit of the background behind NCAT. The National Center for Appropriate Technology, or NCAT, has a, a, a pretty long history. We're approaching 50 years of work. Um, actually started in 1976 in response to the energy crisis, sort of uh, appropriate technology being born from that uh, movement in the 60s and 70s with the back to the land movement, um, appropriate technology being more small scale, sustainable uh, easy to use technology. So a lot of people hear appropriate technology and they think we're flying drones or doing all of this uh, heavy technology work, but we're very focused on simple solutions. In the 80s, during the farm crisis, we were one of the first organizations to sort of recognize that nexus between agriculture and energy. And that formed our uh, ATRA program, which is appropriate technology transfers to rural America. And that's really our sustainable agriculture work. We do that work through a cooperative agreement with rural development, uh, sort of like extension work. We provide direct technical assistance to farmers and producers uh, around topics of sustainable agriculture and localized food systems. And currently, too, I guess I, I will give a plug to our AgriSolar project. Uh, we have a, a great new project that's launched that's focused on the nexus of uh, agrivoltaics and agriculture and how farmers can diversify their revenue streams by incorporating uh, grid-tied and off-grid-tied solar systems into their existing production systems. How, how did you get into this? What's your background? Well, uh, I uh, actually started farming in 2010, I guess, full time. At that time, uh, ATRA and NCAT were, were two of the biggest resources that I was using. 
um, actually through one of our um, veterans training programs that we run in 2011, I, I attended the first iteration of our arm to farm program and was introduced very heavily to NCAT Natra. And uh, that actually spawned my desire to do this type of work. And I applied for my military benefits to go back to college. And, you know, three years ago, they saw fit to, to hire me. So <laughs> sort of a long way to get here, but felt like a big homecoming for me. Yeah. All right. So um, did you grow up on a farm and then come back to the family farm? Uh, well, like a lot of people, I grew up on a substance farm in a small town in northern Maine and uh, swore that I would never go back to it and did everything I could to get away from it. And then years later, realized uh, when I started raising a family how good I had it as a child. And that was sort of what pushed us back to the farm life, my family and I. So, yeah, it was it was a long journey. Did a lot of things in between before I found where I where I belonged. Right. And talk about this arm to farm program. You've got a unique experience of having gone through it as a participant and now kind of are on the other side with NCAT. Um, I assume that's, you know, helping to facilitate more of that. What what is this arm to farm program and how exactly had it worked? Did it work for you? In terms of background, uh, it's re really good time for that because this year is our 10-year anniversary with the program. And what it is, is it's a week-long immersive training where we basically cover the, the entire principles of holistic farm management and planning. So our participants spend half the day in a classroom and then the other half a day on farms, uh, local farms, you know, learning from producers. Uh, we cover everything from business planning, marketing, development to production techniques. The program has actually been so successful that now we have a second iteration of it. We have a 2.0 where former graduates can reapply and come through a more intensive training program where we do more practice specific stuff and actually have a lot more peer to peer learning where they get to share and educate other participants about what they're doing on their farm and what struggles and challenges they've had. And then also secondarily, we now have an urban focused one in partnership with the U.S. Botanic Gardens that trains around urban agriculture because we've seen a huge uptick in, in interest for food security and more food production in urban areas. And I think for me, the biggest thing and, and that I took away from it was, um, you know, a lot of people try to sell this as a dream, you know, which it is a dream. I mean, I'm, I'm not taken away from that. I'm very fortunate to, to be able to farm and do the work that I do. And I'm thankful for that every day. But the reality is there's a lot of struggles and a lot of challenges. And I think that was the biggest thing that I, took away from from uh, attending an arm to farm which at the time it wasn't arm to farm it was the pilot project so it didn't have a name but um i think the biggest thing that it did for me was it allowed me to understand that every day was going to be different and a challenge and that this isn't just a a smooth easy road to success right yeah, you're not if you're running into challenges, it's not because you're necessarily doing it wrong. It's kind of you know, it's kind of part of the process, right? Yeah, it's the nature of of farming, right? And I think that's one of the things that attracts veterans to it so much too, is like you have to be very situationally aware to your surroundings and you know, you have a plan every day, but you have to adapt and adjust based on what the day brings you or the weather brings or in any number of factors. The markets change supply chains collapse or expand and and you have to adapt constantly so it's a it's, it's a constantly changing environment yeah uh, are are these veterans that go through the program and, and and you could speak for yourself personally as well 
folks that have already have access to farmland and if not how are they getting access to land which seems to be you know the biggest barrier for new farmers in 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 america at least yeah that, well that's a great question and, and one i think we i don't want to say struggle with but we're constantly trying to figure out how to resolve um typically you know our program has space for about 30 producers to go through the programming and we typically have over 100 applicants so we try to gauge our selection process based on if they have access to land now or how easily accessible is land for them. Um, but one of the things that we try to do to address that is every, every time we go into a community, like, you know, Sunday I'm leaving for uh, St. Paul, Minnesota for an arm to farm and we'll leverage local resources, whether that's local land access organizations or, or local government agencies to sort of help address those issues of access to, to farmland because, you know, Farmland, depending on where you live, can be very hard to come by and very expensive. And that's one of the biggest barriers we see to, to starting an operation. But to answer your question, I mean, I think that we try to address that with, with local resources and by involving local partners on the ground in the region that can help us address some of those issues with the folks that are in our program. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's talk about soil health and, and either from your own, your own farm or from NCAT's perspective, how are you all, you know, thinking about soil health and approaching it? Um, well, I mean, I think in terms of our thought process, soil health is the most important thing that we have in terms of our production systems, right? I mean, I remember, you know, 10 years ago when I started this work in extension, we had beef farmers and now we have beef farmers transitioning to grass farmers, recognizing the value of their grass. And now we have, you know, graziers that are recognizing the importance of soil health and they're actually farming soil. So I think that I don't, I don't want to speak as, for NCAT as a whole, because again, we have a diverse number of specialists with a diverse number of backgrounds, but for me, soil health is the most critical thing to the success of our operation. You know, if you're in a grazing situation, your soil health directly impacts the quality of your grass, the nutrients in your graze, forage, and it's critical. And the same goes for, for our production systems, right? We used to run a small CSA and, uh, you know, soil health impacted the taste of our tomatoes. It impacted the amount of fertilizers and inputs we had to put on there. You know, I think it all starts with soil, right? Um, one of Wendell Berry's quotes is, uh, what I stand for is what I stand on. And I, I think that soil is what we all stand on, and it's the foundation for all life and sustenance on this planet. So there's nothing more important than healthy soils. And when I think about the, the name, it's kind of, the, you know, the National Center for Appropriate Technology. When you think about soil health and appropriate technology, uh, are there certain areas you're concentrating your efforts? Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, reduced tillage, right? Implementation of cover crops um, and proper crop rotations. Uh, one of the one of the side projects I'm I'm working on that I'm really excited about with uh, one of my associates at Kentucky State University here in Kentucky is a, you know a five to seven year crop rotation. You know, thinking about how proper rotation can help mitigate fertilizer inputs, but also pesticide issues, pest issues, and also create a, a better ecosystem for the soil, which is going to create a better ecosystem for my farm as a whole. Um, so I think we, we're definitely highly focused on cover crops. Um, another interesting program we have is uh, Soil for Water, which is one of uh, the only program I know of that's focused on the 
you know, what we'll call the soil sponge, right? Your soil's health and its ability to absorb water and nutrients directly impacts the quality of your forages or the quality of the crops that you're producing. So, um, you know, I think above all else, proper use and maintenance for the soil, reducing tillage and making sure we're feeding the soil and recognizing that the soil in and of itself is a, is a home to millions of organisms that, that need to be fed and nurtured if we want to have proper, proper care and, and grow the most efficient crops and, and hit the highest revenue margins we can without a lot of external inputs. Yeah. So I think cover crops and reducing tillage and feeding the soil is the most important thing about our appropriate technology aspect to that. And what does that soil for water program look like in practice? I mean, is it, is it trainings or, I mean, you kind of mentioned the principles behind it, but what's the program look like? Well, it's, it's really amazing because it's, it's uh, 90% of the program is peer to peer, right? So uh, we have a lot of field days, a lot of pasture walks where farmers will come out to another farmer and see what they've done, whether it's rotational grazing or introducing more native species to their graves and how those things have impacted, you know, their soil's ability to manage water, right? I mean, in the West, we have droughts and the soil's not holding enough water. In the East over here, I've got too much water coming in and I need to make sure that it can move through my soil so it doesn't pool. Um, so I think that's one of the really cool things about that project is that it is more peer-to-peer learning. It's not so much me as a specialist telling a producer what is what the right thing to do. It's more focused on producers sharing knowledge with producers where we act more as a, a conduit and a connector to help producers share their practical on-farm knowledge with other producers. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about cover crops. I mean, obviously you mentioned the importance of cover crops, but are there specific species or practices that you found is really working with uh, either on your farm or the farmers you work with? Well, obviously we like, a, we like a lot of legumes because of their, their nitrogen fixing capacity. You know, I certainly use a, a lot of uh, cow peas, uh, black eyed peas, as they're called here in the South, a lot of wheat over winter. Uh, but the, the primary cover crop, I, I now to be clear, I'm, I'm more of a, a specialty crop grower, more tomatoes, lettuces and things like that. But the number one cover crop that we use on our farm is uh, buckwheat, um, primarily because it's fast growing. If I have a five-day window, I can get a quick cover crop in, get a couple inches of growth, get some soil feeding action happening in the roots and have something that I can incorporate back in. But, you know, cover crops, I mean, they serve a bunch of functions, right? If we're trying to break up something that, you know, if I've just tilled a plot and then it rains really hard and it creates a hard pan, we know that we can come through and plant some daikon radishes or some forage beets that are really going to break up that compaction, you know. And then we use a lot of winter wheats and rye, um, vetch, clovers. We use a nice mix in the winter of vetch, clover, and wheat. Yeah. So I think it, you know, the answer to that is really what, what problem are you trying to solve for? You know, are you having a, you know, a pest issue where you need to break a cycle or are you trying to fix nitrogen so you can grow corn in the spring without adding, you know, a few pounds of, of uh, ammonium nitrate to the acre in the, in the spring? Yeah, we, we haven't really talked a whole lot about like kind of cover crops in a specialty crop scenario. So maybe talk more about your farm as far as uh, the, the size of the farm and then also kind of the different crops. You mentioned tomatoes and lettuce, but to any other crops that you're growing. 
Yeah. So, um, well, my farm is a, is a small mountain farm. We're, we're right at the western foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. We butt right up to the Daniel Boone National Forest. We have about 126 acres. Uh, 12 of that is tillable. Uh, the rest of that is in a forest-based pasture system. Uh, we primarily farm fresh market vegetables for local markets, do a little bit of corn and wheat for, for some uh, side projects that we do for value-added. Um, and then we raise a significant amount of livestock. We have some cattle, uh, pastured pork, and pastured poultry. So, you know, sometimes our cover crops, uh, to be important to add, includes moving our chickens into the, the field, right, to, to help with cleaning up residue, adding a little bit of manure, nitrogen, and then planting another cover crop and giving it some downtime before we go back into the spring. So, yeah, I mean, crops come out quick, right? A lettuce or a radish crop that's going to a fresh market can be out of the ground in 25 days. And in that 25 days, if we have a seven to 10 day or two week window before we put another crop in there, we, we don't like to leave bare soil. So adding that buckwheat, as I said earlier, that's the, the number one thing we use on our farm just because of the speed with which it grows and the amount of coverage we get in a quick amount of time. Um, but it also gives us a good amount of biomass to put back into the soil to feed those microbes before we put in a tomato crop because our radishes go in early and and they come out and we give it a week or two with some quick cover crop, nitrogen, you know, throw in some beans or peas and with your buckwheat. And then you can turn that into back into the soil and plant your crops back on top of that. So we are, you know, versus a, a typical row cropper, we're turning cover crops a lot quicker, right? It doesn't make sense for a bean farmer to, to put a cover crop in for 10 days. Um, that's, <laughs> you know, that's, that you're losing money, right? That's a, that, that's a money loser. But um, so it's a little bit different than, than your standard uh, conventional agriculture, we'll say, where you're growing corn, beans, or wheat, or something like that over a long season. But still, the lessons are still just as applicable. You're going to have the same soil health issues from continual production systems that cover crops are going to do a great job breaking up impaction in the soil, replacing some of the nitrogen that was used for that crop, and really feeding that. You know, I think, again, the goal is always, from my perspective as a farmer, is how do you make sure the soil is in optimal shape to give the crop that you're growing what it needs on the other end. And, you know, cover crops do a really good job with that. Yeah. Well, why do you suppose more kind of uh, smaller acreage specialty crop growers don't use cover crops? I, I just don't see it that often. It sounds like you, you kind of throw it in wherever you can. Um, what are some of the challenges to getting more people to do that? Well, I, I mean, I, I'd like to think that more people are doing it. Maybe we're just not hearing it. Um, but that's, you know, selfishly, I guess, because that's my work. But I think, you know, I, th I think that there's a conception that it's harder than it is. You know, there is an increased cost. And when you're looking at a balance sheet, you know, it runs for one season. And so that cover crop doesn't necessarily equate into immediate revenue, right? These things take time to get to a point where, you can stop spending five or six thousand dollars a year on external inputs because you've been able to uh, do it yourself. But I, I think primarily it's just awareness, right? Our our ag education system for so long was was built around synthetic fertilizers. So I think we're starting to see that change more, especially here in in my region. You know, but I mean, when you when you still have specialists out there, you know, talking about 
triple 19 and ammonium nitrate fertilizers and things like that. I, I, it's just awareness. Uh, it's just getting people to know that, hey, you can accomplish the same thing with a cover crop, um, you know, blend that you could by adding ammonium nitrate or some other form of chemically derived fertilizer. But it, it, I think one of the other barriers is it takes time, right? You know, with with an ammonium-based fertilizer, you see the benefits immediately. With a cover crop, maybe it's three or four years before you get to that point where you have the same results. So, but I, I really think it's just education and outreach and, and understanding the system because we've conditioned, right? I mean, after World War II, we, we pushed synthetics really hard. And, you know, that's, that's what we're not up against, but that's the barrier. One of the bigger barriers is just knowledge and making people aware of the fact that, hey, you know, we functioned with natural systems for thousands of years before this came along and we can do it again, you know, that, and, you know, it's a little harder, right? It requires a little more planning, a little more forethought. You got to buy some extra seed, got to get your timing down just right. But, you know, none of those things are insurmountable, all pretty simple challenges. It's just uh, knowledge and access to information, I think is, is the biggest barrier. Yeah. What what's next for your farm? What are you thinking about today? What you know? Uh, what's your desire for uh, for the future of your farming operation? Um. Well, honestly, uh, I'm trying to get smaller and maintain the same profit <laughs> profitability. You know, I think that one of the things that we're really focused on is being able to have a place where we can show other producers other alternatives to production, right? <laughs> You know, we open our farm up three or four times a year for other producers to come on and look at our hog production system and to learn how we've reduced our feed inputs by timing of our farrowing and our pasture management skills. So I'm I'm really thinking about how we can be more efficient and scale back a little bit, because, as I said, I've taken on a little more responsibility at work and that sort of has to readjust my my on farm responsibility, because if I maintain at our our current levels of production you know that's putting a lot more uh work on my wife and kids which doesn't always end the way i want it to so really thinking about how we can produce just as much food but on a smaller scale and and get a little more efficient that's great well mike i always ask like my last question is just you know if you could have one message to an audience of of farmers interested in building healthier soils what would be your message and you know sort of your ted talk moment if you will well i don't know if i have a a message or or more of an encouragement about that you know farmers are on the the front lines of of so many important things to to our existence on this planet you know our health our ability to feed one another and now we see more every day our ability to help mitigate some of the climate challenges that we're facing. And I guess my, my parting message would be if, if you're listening to this and you're a farmer, I am so proud and happy that you've taken on this work. And um, I think that you're a testament to what built this country and you're going to be what moves this country forward. So thank you for your service to feeding everybody and for continuing to try to learn and and do better. I'm so excited that there are so many great farmers out there doing this work and so interested in the work that we're doing. I'm so excited that you're 
wanting to listen to me talk about this because for years I've been the crazy farmer behind my barn that my neighbors think, what's this wackadoo doing today? You know, and now it's like, it's coming full circle. And it is because of farmers being willing to adapt and change and, and do the right thing. So I think that's a, that's a testament to what made us a great country and that's what's going to keep us great. Well, inspiring words to end today's episode. Thank you very much to Mike Lewis for being on the show. Uh, It's telling how often I hear someone who we feature on the show say something to the effect of what he just said right there, which is his neighbors thinking he's crazy. And it makes me so grateful to do this podcast where farmers can find other quote unquote crazy farmers to stay on the leading edge of finding ways to build healthier soils that work on their farms. We'll leave a link in the show notes for NCAT. So if you want to learn more about their organization or their programs, you can do so there. Before we close, I'd like to thank the Soy Checkoff for sponsoring this Farmers for Soil Health series of the Soil Sense podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Abby Wick, Dr. Olivia Cayouette, and myself with support from the United Soybean Board, the University of Missouri Center for Regenerative Agriculture, and the Soil Health Institute. If you're at all interested in what soil health looks like in practice and on the farm, I highly suggest you subscribe to and follow this show on your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and review while you're there. Also, be sure to check out the Farmers for Soil Health website, which is just farmersforsoilhealth.com. Until next time, stay curious, keep collaborating, and don't forget to take a minute to stop and smell the soil. Have a good one.